0: You know, I did a Don't Shave for Two Weeks charity event a couple of years ago, and I won the Never Grow a Mustache Again Award. <laughs> Never, just, Never just, Grow a Beard Again. It was just scraggly. It just it wasn't... Patchy. Was, <laughs> it was not a good look.
1: <laughs> it's episode 284 of Bourbon Pursuit, the podcast featuring news, reviews, and interviews, with people making the bourbon whiskey industry happen. Before we start today's podcast, talking to Danny Kahn of Barton 1792, here's your weekly bourbon news update. Four Roses is opening its newest storage facility, Warehouse Y, in Cox's Creek, Kentucky, and it's going to hold an additional 24,000 new barrels of bourbon. Warehouse Y is the second of several new warehouses to be built as a part of a major expansion project that began in 2015 where they're investing $21 million into the Four Roses location at Cox's Creek. Now, in addition to Warehouse Y, updates also included the new bottling facility that was completed in 2017 and Warehouse X that was completed in 2018. Now moving on to bourbon release news. Coming from Barton 1792, which unfortunately is not going to be in today's podcast, but maybe one day we'll get to it and maybe talk about it with Danny at another time. But they are now releasing their first ultra premium brand featuring bourbon finish in a variety of casks, and it's called Thomas S. Moore. Now, Thomas S. Moore is not a new brand, but it's being revived. In 1889, Thomas S. Moore was the man that built the distillery, now known as Barton 1792. And business boomed until the 18th Amendment forced the distillery to close because of Prohibition in 1920. Now, Barton is introducing this new category of what they call Extended Cask Finished Bourbon whiskeys, where it rests for one to three years in this new collection. And the first three expressions to be released are finished in port casks, another in Chardonnay and the final in Cabernet Sauvignon. There'll be more cask finished releases every single year and they will have a suggested retail price of $70. Now myself and Ryan, we just want to take a quick second and say thank you to all of you out there that have supported us in Pursuit Spirits for this entire year. Ryan and I have been fortunate to be able to be put in front of hundreds of bourbon barrels of whiskey this year and select everything for our Pursuit series brand. And now with Pursuit United right around the corner, we're going to be bringing an incredible blend to you all in partnership with Bardstown Bourbon Company and Finger Lakes Distilling. So make sure that you visit PursuitSpirits.com to see what barrels are going to be available around the country and also what can be ordered online. And for its final bottling of 2020, Barrelcraft Craft Spirits is releasing Barrel Bourbon Batch 27. It's a blend of straight bourbon whiskeys distilled and aged in Tennessee, Kentucky, and Indiana. And this new bottling will feature selections of 5, 6, 8, 9, 13, and 15-year-old barrels that have been taken through all their blending steps, which deliver a quote-unquote cherry bomb type of flavor. It's bottled at Cast strength at 115.7 proof and has a suggested retail price of $90. And you can see what barrel bourbon releases are available that can be shipped right to your door at Bourbon. Now, for today's episode, it features the master distiller from Barton 1792, Danny Kahn. And Danny comes from a great background of actually brewing beer that led him to some high-profile beer names in the industry that ultimately led him to this role. And for me, the real star of the show were the samples that he brought, where the lowest one that I actually tried, I think if I can recall correctly, was around 125 proof, and then they creep up to 160 proof bourbon samples. We talk about how the bourbon gets that way in the barrel, and what our wishes would be when he finds these insane high-proof barrels like these. I mean, who wouldn't want a single barrel of it? So with that, enjoy today's episode, and here's Fred Minnick with Above the Char.
2: I'm Fred Minnick, and this is Above the Char. I want to take you back to a time when people just wanted whiskey because it was, quote, smooth. That's when they could give you backstories about somebody inventing a sour mash recipe or somebody coming on down the plains with the barrels and the Old West would just soak it up and drink it dry. And all these types of stories, all these things, it was the 1950s. The 1950s when bourbon was in the middle of a big boom and they were out of prohibition and everybody was drinking bourbon. This was before craft beer. This was before vodka. This was before uh, single malt scotches was able to penetrate like the really rich people. Everybody wanted bourbon and it was just the same as it is today. The majority of the brands came from just a handful of distillers. They just created all these different labels for them. And by the way, there were source whiskey companies all over the place purchasing big old giant stocks of barrels just as they do today. And back then, everybody was just happy to just drink that spoonful of whiskey bullshit That so-and-so did this, and grandpappy did that, and oh, by the way, this whiskey is smooth. See, not a lot of things have changed in the delivery of uh, whiskey bullshit, but what has changed are the people who receive it. You see, you and I, we're we're just a little bit more bright about what we're consuming than our grandfathers or our great-grandfathers were or great-grandmothers. And I'm glad about that. But at the same time, it's brought us to a level of cynicism that doesn't really allow us to appreciate new products or new trends in American whiskey. We're so cynical about everything because we've been so jaded and burned in the past that we can't open our eyes and see when something is genuinely true and beautiful that we cannot get Past the industry and the industry standards of bullshit. So I encourage you, as we jump into 2021 very, very soon, to have an open mind about new whiskey products coming out. Not all of them are bad. Not all of them are trying to deceive you, although a good chunk are. Like I can't even do it. I can't even do it. What, what am I? What am I trying to do here? I'm trying to tell you to like believe in the future of whiskey. When at the same time, I'm still being very much a curmudgeon and very much cynical about everything that comes out. So, how about we do this? How about we hold people accountable? Let's hold the whiskey brands accountable for what they're putting on the label, what they're putting in the bottle, and oh, by the way, let's judge it for how it tastes for something other than it being smooth. That, I can guarantee you, will work at any point in the history of whiskey. And that's this week's Above the Char. Hey, here we're coming up on New Year's Eve. I want to know what you're drinking. Kenny wants to know what you're drinking. Ryan wants to know what you're drinking. So get the bottle that you plan to crack open on New Year's Eve. Take a picture of it and tag us on social media, at Bourbon Pursuit and at Fred Minnick. Until next time, cheers.
1: Do you ever pour yourself a bourbon, swirl it around, and then start struggling to come up with tasting notes? It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. Welcome back to the episode of Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of Bourbon. Kenny here today, and I'm going to be interviewing somebody that we've been looking forward to getting on the show for a long time. We've had master distillers from all major different distilleries out here. And I'm actually really excited for this one because our guest is actually a fan of the show. He listens to it and everything like that. And I remember we talked to him at Bourbon and Beyond last year at 2019, and he was like, I want to come on the podcast. And I was like, let's do it. Like, we're going to do it. So we started, you know, talking and figuring out like, all right, who are we going to schedule? What are we going to do? And uh, I wrote down in my list and I was like, oh, like Danny Con." I was like, okay, we're going to go. I'm going to go and knock on the doors at Sazerac and see if we can get Danny on the show. So I'm super excited that we can actually make this happen today. So without further ado, I am going to go ahead and introduce our guests. So today on the show, we have Danny Kahn. He is the master distiller from Barton 1792 from Barstown, Kentucky. How are you doing, Danny? I am well. Thank you very much. It's
0: actually really good to be here.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I said, you know, I didn't say fr- you're not, are you from, from Barstown, Kentucky? Because Barton is actually in Barstown, Kentucky. Where are you from, from?
0: So I have to speak to where my dad's from. My dad was born and raised in Louisville, Kentucky. I And then he moved to California. Um, I'm actually born and raised in Los Angeles and um, traveled quite a bit in the name of alcohol production. But um, California is my home, but I wanted to make bourbon. So it was um, critical for me to move to Kentucky. Though the law does not state I have to be in Kentucky to make bourbon. I believe
1: you have to be in Kentucky to make bourbon. It makes it a little bit more authentic, doesn't it? Yeah. So before we get too far down that path and more about your history, let's kind of start with our, our random icebreaker. So your question for you is, do you have an interesting scar? <laughs> uh,
0: yes, as a matter of fact, and I'll, I'll speak to <laughs> That's a funny question and I'll explain why. I actually um, uh, was in the emergency room about three weeks ago. Oh, and um, you know, the story that my family will hate to hear is that um, I don't know who, but it was either my wife or my daughter stabbed me Okay,
1: (laughs) on purpose or
0: no, absolutely not. (laughs) Uh, We were working in the kitchen and it was crowded in the kitchen and I'm leaning over to the left and I feel something heavy hit my foot. It didn't hurt. It was just heavy. You know, often things hit your foot and they hurt because there's, you know, sensitive stuff going on. And um, I looked down. I took a couple steps, and I looked down, and I hit an artery. Oh, a, a knife fell off the counter—a ten-inch chef knife that I literally sharpened the day before, and it was razor sharp because I like sharp knives. And it landed
1: right on top of my foot. Oh, like just like it couldn't have been at a worse angle—like zero degrees. It was. Down.
0: It was. So it left a, about a one-inch gash in my foot. It hit an artery. And um it was it was messy. I don't need to get too graphic, but it was messy and you know we're, I'm walking in and it. It's clearly an artery is bursting. I mean, I, again, I don't want to turn off your, your your fans right off the bat. Did you have any but shoe protection on or is it just are you just barefoot? Oh. I am I'm barefoot all the time at home and um, you know the worst part about it was I was about to miss dinner, but we we Well, it was incredible pizza my wife made. And uh, we wrapped me up and I ate it on the way to the hospital.
1: Oh, really? Okay. Just wrap it up. Let's go. Oh.
0: Unfortunately, I've got a lot of scar stories.
1: I, I had a, I had <laughs> that just a, happens to be the most recent one. Yeah,
0: that was just the most recent. Probably not the most interesting, but I um have had a um a, a history of a uh, bad choice of hobbies. Let's put it that way. So, I've I've gotten a few bumps and bruises throughout the years.
1: What's give me one of those hobbies? What's a what's a bad hobby that ended up in a scar? Um whitewater kayaking was uh, was an
0: obsession for about 12 years, uh, vertical skateboarding was an obsession for at least that long as well. What's vertical skateboarding? Uh, Empty swimming pools.
1: Oh, okay. Just like in bowls and
0: whatever. Pre-skate parks, you know, um, empty swimming pools. And that was- um, You're totally from California. It was an obsession. But but the, the funny one was in my kayaking, the very first time I did whitewater, they tell you when you flip upside down, you've got to kiss the deck, which means that you're close to the surface. And that's an important position to be in to roll. And when you flip upside down, the first thing you want to do is get the hell out of the boat. Mm-hmm. And I ended up pulling off the spray skirt and pushing, extending my body out to get out of the way. And I'm thinking, gee, what's that? As I hit a rock underwater. So I, I you can't really see the scar, but I cut my eye pretty good. Oh gosh. First, first whitewater adventure. Best thing that ever happened because it never happened again. Exactly. You learn,
1: you learn from your mistakes right away. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we'll leave it at that. I got a few others. Oh man. I would say, so the only, you know, I got, I got a few, I would say probably the most interesting, I don't even know. It's, it's probably going to turn some, some viewers off anyway too. is So I actually shattered the tip of my finger here. Uh, it was in high school and I was spotting somebody in the weight room for, you know, wrestling and everything like that, weight training. And there was, it was a, it was a weird thing that we were doing. It was kind of like before a lot of the machines you would actually have, um, for your calf muscles and you would actually be able to lift it. So what we did is we put dumbbells between our feet and we used that and kind of like lifted them up and stuff. And his dumbbell slipped and I tried catching it and it was like a 35 pound, 45 pound dumbbell. And that thing just took my hand straight to the ground. Needless to say, I was out all season after that one. Yeah. But, yeah.
0: I cringe thinking about it.
1: Yeah. yeah it, it wasn't fun. It wasn't fun. Yeah. We don't need to go into the gory details of it, but you know, before we start getting into some uh, other details of just your whiskey and stuff like that, let's talk about, cause we've, we've got actually quite a few different bourbons that you've lined up for us here for today. So I know the first one is something a little bit special. Uh, it's no longer available anymore. And this is the 1792 year, 12 year, that you had selected for the gift shop. Um, this was uh, 2019, really, something like that?
0: Yes, and this, this one's unique because we did um, age 12 year um, last year, and I think there were about 1,400 cases for the whole nation. But this one is special. Um, we actually had five barrels that were a little over 12 years old that were essentially lost. So what happened was- How does a
1: barrel get lost?
0: Well, you know, when we've got 560,000 of them and you move barrels from one location to another and you forget to record where they are, they're still there, but you just kind of lose track of what's what. Mm -hmm. So it was something like that. But these five barrels were um, aged up high in our warehouse for eight and a half-ish years. And then they were brought down for a single barrel selection or something like that, a little bit before my time. And then they just sat- in the, on the first floor of our coolest warehouse for about four and a half years. And we found them and our um, tour manager, um, Josh, um, Josh Holyfield um, said, you know what, let's do a, a charity single barrel release of one of these. So we tasted all five of them. Four of them were really quite incredible. One of them was a little funky, um, but when we started to blend them together, three of them together were magical. Now, what's really interesting to me about this is that it is actually a little bit lower in proof than one would expect because they were stored at the bottom of a very cool and very damp warehouse. So they actually dropped a little bit in proof. And I sort of liken it a little bit to how some scotches age where they'll pick up some of the environment um, of their surroundings. And this has a certain aroma and taste that reminds me of warehouse age
1: oh, that's great you know and even taking it down what was the bottling proof on this one you said like 93 or something
0: um like it was um it was high 90s 90 97
1: 97 it, it's 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 different with the 1792 line because you always think and you know from a, a an enthusiast point of view we look at this because we're always like yes foolproof all the way and i mean they're proof monsters right i mean that's yeah. what you get out of a lot of these expressions I found that when I tried the 1792 12-year, the nationwide release, not this exact one. I mean, this is phenomenal, but we really loved it at the proof level that it was. And I think that's something that as I start going down my bourbon journey even more, I find out that like maybe 125 proof isn't always the best thing. Like it's always good to get a little bit more, you know, you kind of tone it down a little bit more. You get a lot more of those flavors that are coming out of it.
0: It gives you freedom. Because at 125, you can, you know, ma- make a great cocktail and still have good proof. I like uh, bourbon forward cocktails. I want to be able to taste this do. spirit. You know, yeah, right?
1: You're like, if I, wanna, if I want a Manhattan or old-fashioned, I don't want to just taste orange or... Yeah, or,
0: right? Know. So then you can, um, if you're into ice, you know, put a nice ice cube. You can dilute it a little bit, little, a couple drops of water if you're a high proof. So the value of the high proof is that you've got more flexibility. And by the way, the other thing about this is that this version is not chill filtered. So it retains a little bit more of some of that viscosity that would otherwise be filtered out through chill filtering. So it's got a little bit more uh, mouthfeel, a um, little bit more aroma. So, and this went to a charity, the Movember charity, which um, supports, um, you know, men's mental health. Yeah, we and know Josh
1: is a big, big supporter of that. He's he always, a yeah, he, has a, he always has a a Facebook campaign every single year yes. supporting his mustache growth. What about you? Are you a big mustache grower when that comes no, around?
0: I mean, I I support the cause, but, you know, I did a... Don't shave for two weeks charity event a couple of years ago, and I won the never grow a mustache again award. <laughs> never, just, never just, grow a beard again. It was just scraggly. It just it was <laughs> it was not a good look. <laughs> so Josh, on the other hand, um, you know he changes it every couple of days because he um, is a prolific mustache grower. Yeah, you know
1: some people were born with that good gene, but yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I I can't I can't grow a great one. Yeah, so. <laughs>
0: but uh, but it was great and we we only we got 472 bottles out of this um this three barrel selection and um and they sold out right away they were sold the day after thanksgiving when we opened up our lantern tours which are a self-guided tour we did at the distillery
1: yeah really cool
0: yeah so it was it was a um, good event
1: so i kind of want to you know before we start moving on to the next one here you know kind of talk about a little bit more about your history because i know we've <coughs> talked before and anybody that was at bourbon and beyond knows that you really got your start doing a lot of in beer, yep. right? So kind of talk about your history in brewing before we get into you know, wanting to make bourbon and stuff like that.
0: Yeah, so gosh, depends on how far you want to go back, but I'll, I'll share something that I think is relevant. I grew up near a few breweries, and uh, big breweries, and there was also um, a big bakery nearby. And everyone would talk about opening the vents of their car when they went by the bakery. And closing them when they went by the brewery. And even as a very young kid, I love the smell of the brewery. And and as I and I actually ended up working at that particular brewery in Van Nuys, California, where um, you know, you could look back and we're boiling um, the grain. You know, we're cooking the grain to convert it, or we're boiling the wort before the hops or after the hops, or their packaging. So you could pick up the different smells. And I love those smells. And I was a fan of beer long before it was allowed. And I'll, I'll, tell you, I'll, I'll tell you one quick story that my mom um, um, hated.
1: Yeah, we, like, we love these stories.
0: It's, it's a cool story. I mean, I was five years old and, and she was at Bush Gardens, which was a free uh, beer park mm-hmm. for part of Anheuser-Busch uh, way back in the, um, gosh, late 60s, I suppose, and might have been the early 70s. And um, when she was turning to talk to her friend, I would take sips of her beer just little sips i mean probably just a taste cuz it tingled and it was bitter you know just just little stuff something
1: like, different yeah. yeah
0: and 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 she didn't know it and one of the guys that worked there came up to her and said now i don't know if i really remember this or i just remember her telling me this but he told her lady if you continue to let your son drink beer we're going to have to ask you to leave <laughs> <laughs> so so i had a a a a flavor for um an appreciation for malt beverages And um, for alcoholic beverages and, you know, that's kind of where it started. But after that, I ended up going to University of California, Davis as a chemical engineer. And I did not know they had a wine program. I did not know they had a beer program. And I started making beer in college um, mostly for economic reasons.
1: Gotta get have a reason to put some money in your pocket to party on the weekend or what? No,
0: because I didn't have to buy beer.
1: Uh-huh. So we would make our yeah own. that's a smart move. And
0: we were able to make beer, um, I remember doing the math, for 12 cents a bottle. You know, not accounting equipment costs, just material costs. And um, it became sort of an obsession. You know, we made 10 gallons a week for almost two years. And we gave away beer. We'd always do one batch in the brew house, then we'd we'd split it and do an experiment. So that's how we learned to create flavor. And, um, you know, how it connects to what I do today is that we make beer today. We make distiller's beer and we put it through the still. It's the same process. It's grain, it's milling, it's cooking, it's fermenting. All those things that create flavor um, are what we did in the beer world. But what I really loved about it was that balance between art and science. You know, you tweak something, you create a flavor. And, um, you know, learning the scientific principles that drive that flavor were fascinating. And, um, and that started me down my path without really any direction at that point. But I, I, I worked at several wineries when I was in college because great, great intern positions, but
1: I- And it's still alcohol, right? Yeah, so it still fits your bill.
0: I like beer better for sure at that point. Um, and I ended up doing an internship at Anheuser-Busch. And then I started a long career in a variety of technical roles and research roles and raw material roles and new product roles. And we distilled on the side. So even then- I was making beer, the extension of that and distilling it is, um, is, is really important. And, and what I like to say now, um, tongue in cheek, is that you know, beer's for quitters.
1: <laughs> there we go, beer's you know? for quitters. Huh? Because, so before everyone <laughs> turns off, it's a bourbon podcast, so I think that's cool. Yeah, I think we're, I think we're good, at least for a little bit. We won't, we won't lose them right away. But
0: and what I mean by that is that if you simply distilled your beer and let it age for a decade, you could turn it into bourbon. So, so, a little tongue-in-cheek, but, but the parallels are really quite similar. So, you know, and then I, um, I ended up leaving, um, you know, this large brewery. Um, great, great position for a long, long, long time. And I took another uh, job as a brewery technical director for a sizable craft brewer. And I was in charge of raw materials and sensory and quality and brewing and R&D. I
1: mean, you're talking, you're talking lots and lots of cases that are being pumped out of here on a daily basis. Oh, oh no doubt
0: about it. And this was the Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. And, okay, and yeah. I and I um you know, it's funny because during that period of time, um um actually probably about 10 years before that I was really growing my bourbon collection. And um what was telling was I had a party at my house one day. And remember I'm the guy in charge of the brewing area, brewing section. And I was almost out of beer. <laughs> and, but but my bourbon collection was 80 bottles at that point, I had 80 open bottles. And I remember that particular event. And um, then people said, wow, why did we not see this coming? Because, um, you know, this position came available. We started talking about it and I am always interested in, you know, pursuing my passion and growing it. And it was just a natural fit. You know, I, I, I like bourbon better and I have for the last decade.
1: Well, that's at least you start fitting the mold pretty, pretty quickly there. Now, I guess I, I kind of want to roll back, uh, back to this, this college era when you are brewing your own beer for yourself because most of us during that time in our lives are used to basically you know four to five percent watered down you know natty light you know bush light whatever it is at that time like that was that was the staple that's a college staple yeah it seems like you were you were drinking all right in college i mean were you experimenting with like you know, like different kinds of malts and different kinds of like, or, you know, like box and all that sort of stuff, or are you trying to create like a light beer that, you know, you can take to parties? Like what was your, what was your recipe back then?
2: Well,
0: it was a lot of them. And it's really funny because we only named the first three beers we made. And the first one was bitter brew. Cause it was just absurdly overhopped; It was <laughs> undrinkable. The second one was banana brew. Cause it just, we used a bad yeast and it was just overwhelming, powerful banana. And the third one was better brew. Actually, we named one more after that. We, the third one was named Better Brew because it was a really good
1: beer. Third Fine, one You finally better. got it, third try.
0: Yeah, third try. And then then the last one we named the fourth one, um, we were sitting around and Cream came on um, with the classic song Strange Brew. So we named it Strange Brew. We hadn't named it since. So they were box or they were stouts or they were Pilsners or Bohemian Pilsners or uh, Continental Pilsners or whatever. We, we were boring when it came to naming. We were, we were excited about the creation and um you know seeing how people liked them so it was it was creating the flavors yeah you didn't have
1: a marketing degree you just had you're just like yeah it's all the chemical science and the engineering just the taste
0: you know and my my, to this day my family mocks me i'm in the habit of you know dinner swirling my milk so when my kids were young they would mock me they would hold their pinky out and i don't do that but they would you know they would it's creamy it's milky, you know, and they would just mock me because it's a habit. I just, uh, I evaluate things. I enjoy them.
1: You know, I mean, I think we, I, we all kind of, even probably a lot of listeners out there, we probably get chastised of the same thing because yeah, you, as soon as you start learning how to taste and how to appreciate things, you almost do it with everything. Yeah. I mean, I'll end up sitting there with myself if we're interested in having a tasting like this and I'll grab my water and I'll accidentally do it with my water. And I'll be like, Oh, what am I doing? This is still water.
0: Yeah. I but, think? but you know, it's funny. I had that discussion with somebody last week water you know water is the majority of it right h2o but it's all those minerals and all those other things that create flavor and water is not water every water out there tastes a little different there's some i
1: like and there's some i don't like so so you got an encyclopedia of like water you don't like you're just like i'm not i'm not drinking that again (laughs) (laughs) Eh, it's not that bad (laughs) (laughs) so what was the second one that you had poured over here i know it was uh, is it a sister of the 1792 12 year? Is that what this one is? Yeah, sort of. This is uh,
0: just a standard bottle of full proof. Oh, okay. Um, and and but but and, and again, I'm sure your listeners know that it won. it is this year's um, Jim Murray Whiskey uh, World um, of the Year, whiskey um, of the world of the year. Excuse me. And um, this one I just really liked. It's got some really interesting flavors.
1: I mean, was it a a single barrel that was submitted for that? No,
0: no, no, no. By the way, we didn't select. Which one went to him? I think he picked it. At least that's—I don't know any different. But this is, um, yeah, this is the world whiskey of the year, Jim Murray. But what I like about this one—I've got several open at my home and at my work. This one just has this incredible amount of a lactone. Um, Lactone is a barrel aging component. You you know, some of the lactones are dill, some are coconut, toasted coconut, and this is very coconutty to me. So. It's one of those things that I look for in a bourbon that I really
1: gravitate towards. I'll tell you what, if you can wrap up an Almond Joy in a barrel, just mark it sold. I'll take it because I agree that if you can find something that has a coconut taste to it and a chocolate taste, oh, I think that's and more or less coconut. It's, it's, it's really hard to find a lot of those coconut flavors when you are starting to look for those barrels and stuff like that. And it's, you know it's funny when you talk about the different flavors, a lot of people associate Barton with like a banana note right? I mean, do you know what really kind of, what makes that happen? Yeah, absolutely. So, every once in a while, someone will
0: describe our bourbon as sort of bananas foster. And every time I say this, I say, you know what, I need to cook bananas foster so I know what the hell I'm talking about. But basically, it's bananas that I think are caramelized in sugar and maybe a little bit of a spirit. So, you get the caramelization and the banana note. So, so it, it makes sense. Our yeast, one of the things that I think make, make our bourbon unique is that we use a very flavorful yeast. And and I think that's really important as the bourbon ages, some of those esters and aldehydes and acids, the components that are a result of the fermentation, change and get complex over time. So I think that's one reason why I am a fan of our bourbon as it ages, because that complexity changes to more complexity. Aged stone fruits, cherries, apricots, stuff like that. But anyways, our yeast also produces a little bit of a compound called amyl acetate, which is what makes bananas smell like bananas. Now it's not overwhelming, it's not overpowering. I actually don't often get it in our distillate because there's so much else going on. But as the bourbon ages, it comes out a little bit. And it's subtle. It's not you know like, a, you know, like some crazy amount of banana, but it's subtle and when you mix it with the vanilla and the caramel and the oak aging type flavors, it stands out as bananas foster so yeah i don't get it in all of them but when it happens i think it's pretty cool
1: yeah i mean it's it's funny people talk about it i guess i've never associated bananas foster to the taste of notes i just i just never have uh for me a lot of the stuff that i get out of you know even the foolproof expressions i mean for me it's it's a lot of oak um you know which is always good i'm I'm a big fan of that because a lot of these are Usually around like an eight year age statement uh, on some of the foolproof is, yeah. is usually somewhere around there. Yeah, yeah.
0: We, we don't have an age statement. And, you know, unfortunately, eight years ago, I don't think we knew bourbon was going to be
1: as popular as it is no. today. Isn't that, isn't so, a shame?
0: what a shame. Yeah.
1: You know? <laughs> Somebody just couldn't look in their magic ball and figure out, like, turn on the engines, let's go full yeah, steam ahead. Yeah. We're certainly there now, though. Yeah. Kind of talk about that. I mean, because I know before we started recording, you'd mentioned that you know, you're supposed to be in the midst of a, a shutdown, but you're trying to, you know, get everything back up and running, going quick and, you know, adding more fermenters, more tanks, like kind of talk about what expansion is right now.
0: Yeah. So we're not really expanding a whole lot. We're, we're just sort of updating and we're fixing, repairing, we're modernizing, we're making ourselves more efficient, more consistent, Work which will, basically. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're, we're already working Um, you know, I'm, I'm doing seven days a week, probably half of the year. And, you know, we, ha- we, can't, we can't do that. You have to go down at some point to do maintenance, to do cleaning. That's, that's just an important part of a distillery that runs, you know, year-round. But, yes, we're in the middle of our shutdown. We've got another week and a half to go. And um, an incredible amount of stuff is going on, you know. We're, we're redoing a whole bunch of the piping and the pumps um, that are going to give us, you know, um, efficiency without hurting quality. Um, we're putting in new electricity to the entire distillery because what we had was really old 1940 era switch gear
1: type stuff so we are now updated and current you're like scared to like it's just like a bunch of like patchwork electrical tape everywhere like yeah just don't touch that well we'll get it fixed at some point
0: (laughs) (laughs) that's a great story but we were we were safe we were just you know maybe it wasn't going to last so we are updated and that is a, a spectacular feeling um, we've put in a couple, uh, tanks, you know, new backset tank, new slop tank. Um, so these aren't increasing capacity, but they're just making us more reliable and, um, you know, just an enormous amount of work. We are one fermenter greater than we were. So in theory, we have a little bit more capacity. Um, the whole distillery is sized pretty well, meaning just adding more fermenters will not get you more capacity. How much can the still do? How much can the cookers do? Um, how much can the dry house do? So it needs to match. So we've um, increased our fermenter by one, and that will give me a little bit more production capabilities. So we're um, we're anxious to get started again because we have a very demanding schedule.
1: Yeah, I'm sure by the time you all hear this that production's already started back again. Everything's back to normal over there. So I guess also one of the things that I think people always associate, or maybe they, they've never heard or know about 1792, is the term of uh, Ridgemont Reserve, mm-hmm. right? Kind of explain the, the history and the name <clears> behind that for people that might not be aware.
0: You know, I would probably suggest that you could answer that history better than I could.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, for myself, I know that it, it was like, it's the name of the still, right? The, the, the massive still that's in there. And it was, it was on the bottle at one point, um, but now it's not on. Uh, however, it's it's just the name of the still that's uh, that kind of one pumping a, a bunch of stuff, isn't it?
0: It you know so we haven't referred to that in my time there, and um, it's not in any of our documentation. Um, I think that at one point people I, I'd heard that before, but we we don't use that term, not at all.
1: All right. well, know. this is one time where Fred could come in and be like oh this is this is this is the whole history of it. you know
0: you know you know what and I will credit him to probably know that history more but I'll tell you what every time I hear something about my distillery that I don't have a great answer to, I promise you that by the time I go to bed tonight,
1: I'll learn about it. <laughs> I'll understand it. I mean, so how many years you've been at, at 1792 now? It's, it hasn't been two years. Two years. Two, year, two, yeah, year, what, two years in a month. That's what I was say. It hasn't been too long. Yeah. Um, I, I was like, I, I was like, it's got to be under five. Because I remember when we started this and looking into it. And I think it was like, there's a master to over there. It was like looking on the way out. And they were bringing somebody new in. And I remember we like, oh, they hired Danny. And like, let's get Danny on the show. And they're like, oh, he needs more time still. He needs more time. And we we're like, okay, cool. But. We finally got you on now. So that's, that's what matters. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So while we're going into the next portion of this, so we've had uh, two samples so far, we had 125 proof, full proof. We had the 17, to 12 year, and then you brought some, some special things that uh, probably going to make some listeners jealous real quick, because these are, yeah. I think this is the fun part about being the master distiller is that you get the opportunity to just go and pull barrel samples whenever you want and just go and like try to find some. Some, some, some fun things, just sit in the warehouse and and, and kind of yeah. talk about that process, you yeah. know, because what's it take? Cause you said today you brought four random barrel samples yep. and just pulled them from wherever. Like what's, what's your method or madness there? Yep. When so, so these truly are random. So what these samples are, and, um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking
0: that I, you know, when I hear your show and I, and I appreciate the fan of bourbon you are and the bourbon pursuit podcast is, and your, your listeners, So I thought, you know, I I should bring something. What can I bring that nobody else can bring? Well, what I can bring are our single barrels. So I literally just looked at our inventory and, um, you know, we're getting ready to gear up for another age 12 year. So I thought, you know what, why don't I pull a couple of our 12 year old samples? So I just simply pulled four samples and the only, the way I picked these wasn't because I necessarily like one warehouse better than another. I simply pick them because they represent some diversity that I would expect. Now, I will tell you that the diversity here is way more than I would have expected and it's actually pretty cool, pretty exciting. So I do, I've got four uh, 12-year-old samples here and what's really amazing is the color difference that your viewers cannot see, one of them in particular.
1: Oh yeah, we'll we'll talk about that one. I mean, it's yeah. I remember you you he pulled that out of his bag, and I was like, "Holy darkness!" Yeah, that is. And and and
0: again, these were random. But but if you look at the various proofs, I've got one twenty-five, I've got one fifty, I've got one sixty-one, and I've got one forty-two. So these are all twelve-year samples, and a lot of that can be predicted because it comes from, you know, where in the warehouse they were. You know, how high up in the warehouse. When they're higher in the warehouse, they tend to be warmer. Um, some of our warehouses have a um, little bit better ventilation than others, so they're gonna be a little bit more airflow. So we're gonna drive off um a little bit more evaporation. Um one of these was very low, and that's why the proof is so low. Um, but it's extraordinarily low. Um so it's 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 interesting. So
1: you know we can want to jump in and taste them well absolutely and i I question about that i mean you mentioned one of these is 160 proof right i mean that is going to blow the minds of a lot of people out there yeah um how how in the world is a bourbon able to adjust because we have to know that you know it it enters the barrel um with maximum of what 125 right Mm -hmm. how does it jump that much in proof over in a span of 12 years Every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash bourbon, all lowercase. And go to shopify.com slash bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash bourbon. How does a jump that much improve over a span of 12 years?
0: Well, you know, we lost more water than alcohol. And that, that's always been a really interesting thing to me because alcohol is more volatile than water. So, you know, I, I often, um, you know, wonder if people understand, well, if alcohol is more volatile than water, why isn't the proof dropping? Because we're losing alcohol. Well, alcohol is also a big complicated molecule. Water is small, and um you know it's trying to reach an equilibrium so if it's dry on the outside of the barrel and it's very moist on the inside of the barrel you're going to be driving more water across that membrane that barrel so you lose more water than alcohol so when you have 161 proof um, i'm guessing this barrel does not have a lot in it you know and i i think that um, the color sort of reflects it it's darker getting more, um, it's, first of all, so it's more concentrated. You know, mm, that's one of the reasons sure. why it's darker, but because it's also higher in alcohol, you've got more of an extraction potential, if you will. It's able to extract more. So, you got a couple things going on. Um, so, it's really quite interesting, but this first one has me a little nervous. It's it's 125, just over 125 proof,
1: and it's a 12-year-old. I mean, to take one out of Guy Fieri, that's, that's Flavortown, USA right there. I mean, it's that it, that smell, that taste, everything that's going on right there is it's phenomenal. Yeah.
0: And you know, we get we get flavor, and this is the cool thing about bourbon: we get flavor based on how long it's been in a barrel. And you know, typically, the higher you go in a rickhouse, the hotter it is. And and this is very anecdotal. There's there's no hard data to support this, but generally speaking, my experience: every floor higher, if you're talking about an eight year old bourbon you go one floor higher, that's approximately equal to a year of age than it is on the lower floor. Again, that's just a directional comment. So, this particular one was on the second floor and that's why it is as mild as it is um, in terms of some of those aging components compared to some of the others that we're going to get into. But, But it's had age. So, what you have here is you've got that slow oxidation. You just didn't get a lot of concentration and a lot of extraction. You yeah, know, but it's still, it's actually a really beautiful bourbon. I can see where a lot of people, if we were going to do single barrels, I can see where a lot of people would prefer this one
1: versus some of the other ones that are going to be bigger and thicker and more complex. I mean, I'm i mean, I'm smelling it right now. Honestly, I prefer this one over the Jim Murray one. This one's got more more of the coconut flavor. I think that I can get off of it, but then again, I'm no master distiller.
0: Well, you know, you know what you like, right? And that's that's the important thing. But what I'm getting out of this is just a lot. I'm getting a lot of that fermentation. You know, a lot of the fruits, a lot of the stone fruits, the cherries, apricots, with a little bit of an age character. So it's not dominated by the wood. To me, this one is dominated by the aged fermentation characters, and and
1: that's to me, it's a little bit of magic. This is this is really nice. And talking about some of that magic, you know, we've we hypothesize a lot and. You know, we, we talk about the idea, like when you find these barrels, you know, you find some of these that are 12 years and you're talking 140, 150, 160 proof. I mean, these are things, these are barrels that most of the bourbon enthusiast community would absolutely go crazy right. and go nuts for. Yeah. And then you're going to take it and you're going to turn it into a, a 12 year, like 97 proof product. Do you, do you hurt a little bit inside when you do that? Or do you think like, oh, this is, this is for the, this is for the good thing. This is what we should be doing. Or do you think like, maybe we should expand this to a a single bill program and offer some of these and like, just like totally blow some minds. Yeah. But I'll tell you this
0: 160 proof that we're going to taste, it's probably gonna be about 10 bottles. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's not going to be a lot there, but it gives you the freedom. Now, the good news is that I have a library for historical purposes. Where you know it's important to save things that were made year over year over year because if I want to go back and do a comparison, how does our bourbon taste versus what we put in a bottle five years ago or ten years ago? So I am doing more to create that library than we have in the past. I think that's important. I think it's science comparing year. What is comparing year over year is really important. I mean, how else do you learn? And you know, my memory is not that good. I cannot say, yeah, remember when you t- we tasted that. You know, a year from now, we're going to talk about this and we think we remember, but we don't. I don't think so. I think you have to have samples to really
1: be sure. Oh, I agree. I mean, you'll be like, oh, do you remember that bourbon we tried it? Oh, it was great. Yeah, I can't remember anything about it though. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, like, it's a consumable thing. You're there in the moment, you're enjoying yeah. it. And,
0: and then also comparing this one to this one is really interesting.
1: And, and, and again, your, your
0: audience can't see this, but the color. And, and we organize these not in terms of proof, but in terms of color. So, so the trick becomes, you know, it's great to know which ones we taste and it's good to be able to identify those flavors. The real fun is why. You know, how did this get to be this way? That's, that's the challenge. That's the thing to understand. Mm-hmm. No, that's, yeah.
1: uh, and that's what we're going to
0: find out. Well, I think so. I mean, honestly, uh, when we dump some of these, I think that it would actually make sense to um, destructively test the barrel, meaning cut it in half. And learn what we can about what's going on with that barrel.
1: Yeah, I mean, this was something that I think that you had mentioned uh, before we started recording that it's it's hard to find some of the data that even 12 years ago, like what I'm assuming it was probably ISC the Cooperage or something like that. But I mean, probably. see, I mean, it's just a guess. But yeah, I mean, it's hard to find some of the data that yeah. almost would be impossible to kind of recreate some of this magic.
0: Well, even today, if I fill a barrel today, how do I know that those 10 barrels I filled in a row, or the 19 barrels going to one rick I filled in a row? Are really, truly identical. Now, our barrel makers have um, really good sense of quality, and um, they've got good sense of consistency. But how do I really know? You know things I mean how you know, as good as they are building barrels and charring barrels and everything that it takes to build a barrel, what about the way the tree grew? You know those are things that that are out of my control. My focus has been to make the best possible distillate and um you After know that
1: you're like let clean my hands it's all it's on it's on brother nature now and father time
0: no no not not i don't quite um you know release it to that degree <laughs> but 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 you know so that's one thing i can control i can't control our fermentations i can't control our mashing and how we run the still but once it goes in the barrel you know i don't talk to every barrel individually to encourage them to do good thing, <laughs> you know, that's, that's, it, it's harder to control that. So I can control the distillate and, you know, any process has variability, right? You're going to have one day that's really good. One day that might not be as good. And maybe it's because, um, I had a temperature deviation on a fermenter. These are real world things, or maybe we lost a little bit of cooling capacity in one of our steel condensers or the flow rate was different. These things make a difference. So what my focus has been is to let's make sure we understand which one is best and make sure that we're being more consistent at the good end, you know? Cause if I have two bourbons, one or two distillates, one that tastes exceptional and is perfect and one is pretty good, but not as good. How do I make them all perfect? So that's the sort of quest. Yes. The scientific artistic quest to make the perfect distillate, which by the way, we haven't gotten there yet. And I don't think we ever will. Consistency is king maybe. You know, it 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 it's important, you know, as long as you're consistent on the good and not consistent
1: on the bad <laughs> on the bad, yeah. yeah. Just make sure you get the good qualities out there. Yeah, and I think I think we're there. I mean, I, I guess one of the other questions that, you know, while we start nosing and doing this uh, the second one here is is when we talk about like the yeast that goes into the fermentation process. Like, you know, we've heard the times of like, oh, this was like a mutated yeast strain that was in this fermentation tank and it created some crazy You know, product at the end of the day. Have you heard of like things that have happened, like like mutated yeast strings and stuff like that? And how do you maintain uh, consistency when it comes to basically a a living organism and you try to control it?
0: Yeah, you know, yeast will mutate. They don't mutate that fast, you know. But there's a lot of things that drive um, yeast performance, and and you know, it gets really technical, but it, it speaks to nutrition. You know, how much protein, you know, how much backset am I using and is the quality of the backset as good as it's always been? There's yeast mass in there, there's, there's nutrition, there's fatty acids, there's minerals. Uh, the water's got a mineral component. Um, the grain's got, you know, proteins and stuff that, you know, help yeast. But temperature is huge. Temperature differences are huge. And, and a big, big part of our production is, you know, there are bacteria present in our fermentations, and we monitor acid production because we want to know how much acid we're producing. Now, the yeast produce some acid, but there are some bacteria present that produce acid. And what I have learned is that, wow, this might not sound right, but if your fermentations are too, um, I was gonna say clean, but I don't wanna give anybody the bad impression. Our, Our systems are very clean, but if we don't have enough bacteria present, the flavors are muted. And we need a little bit of that lactic acid bacteria to produce some of the complexity and some of the flavors that are really important to our process.
1: The now, layman, this is the sour mashing
0: process, right? Um sort of, because sour mash refers to the back set okay. that we add back and and everything is dead because it's gone through the still. But there are bacteria present. They're a natural part of our environment and they exist in our equipment to a small degree. If the bacteria is too high, it will not taste right and we will see poor fermentations. I can smell it when we have, you know, there's just a very specific smell, sourdough bread, right? That, that's wonderful. It's delicious. It comes from a lactic acid bacteria. If you've got too much of that in your mash, it will go too far in that direction. Some people may love it, but it's not what we're looking for. So, we're trying to control that and get the right ratio of yeast to, to acid. So, that's important. I, I don't even remember what your question was.
1: Well, no. I mean, you keep going. This is great because you're talking about like controlling yeast yeah, yeah, how, yeah, yeah, you, yeah, how right. you make sure it doesn't yes, go yes. crazy.
0: So, so, yeah. So, um, you know, we do have the same strain of yeast. We're using the same yeast every single time. But, you know, if you, know, you think about it, I don't make alcohol. I control and manipulate the yeast to make alcohol. You know, they're the workhorses of the distillery. Between the yeast and all of our operators that do a phenomenal job at the distillery, they're the ones that actually, you know. You're, basically, you're the commander of the army. They're the ones. <laughs> well, you know, think about it. There are billions of yeast cells in my army. <laughs> we, um, you know, typically we look at yeast cells, um, you know, and they, they will grow up to about 120 million yeast cells or more, depends on a lot of factors, per millilitre. Okay, per That's milliliter. A, That's, okay,
1: so let's go ahead and just take that by, you know, uh, times it by 82 million and- It's maybe a big to- number.
0: <laughs> so yes, there's an army there. And, um, and we need to give them the conditions they need to grow. You know, how much yeast we add, um, what temperature do the yeast get added at? If it's too warm or too cold, it's gonna be different. So those are the things that we can control. And we pay attention to flavor. And we say, you know what, this is where we wanna be. So we make tweaks. To, to adjust that. So yeah, it's the, it's the yeast that are, to me, so incredible because they're producing, you know, I mean, for every pound of um, starch, pound of sugar, right, we convert starch into sugar and mashing. Mm-hmm. So for every pound of sugar, you produce a pound of alcohol. We don't look at these things in terms of pounds, but it's really the right way to do it. Pound of sugar, you give, use a pound of alcohol and about a pound of carbon dioxide, and then you produce hundreds of almost unmeasurable flavor components. And that's the real magic of fermentation.
1: It reminds me of like the old trick as a, uh, what's heavier, a pound of rocks or a pound of feathers? Yeah. <laughs> yeah right. A pound of alcohol, a pound of sugar. So this second one is interesting. I, I taste like peanut butter. That's what I get off of this one. Maybe tell me, tell me if my palate's well, I'm not, on I, point I, with yours.
0: Well, you know, it's funny. That's the thing about taste. Um, we, we all perceive how these things mix together differently. So I would not say you are wrong. I would describe it a little differently. Okay, well, I'm listening, what's, what's your differentiation? Because I, I... I get, to me, this is headed towards, um, you know, really ripe fruit, um, uh, dried fruits, you know. Um, think about it like this. A grape, you know, we all know what a grape tastes like. And then when you make it a raisin, um, it's concentrated. There's some oxidation going on, so you get different flavors. They're richer, they're more intense. That, to me, is what's going on here. I'm getting a lot of these dried stone fruits. So, I get a lot of really deep,
1: rich, fruity character out of this. And what was the proof on that one?
0: It's a mere 150. Mere 150. Yeah, and again, we're not tasting these in order of proof. We're tasting them in order of color. Color,
1: Absolutely. That's why this one is darker than the first, but… 12, it's, it's still good 12 year old up pretty high in the rickhouse like i said i tell you what you you bottle it you give it an opportunity to put somebody like me in front of a tasting panel I'll, I'll be like oh yeah let's go ahead and bottle that one well, we'll some people will go crazy for it you
0: know and, and, and it's actually incredible tasting um 150 proof now when, when i taste I, I i like to do it several ways you know it's good to taste it out of the barrel so we know what we're starting with but it's also very good to taste it at whatever proof it's going to be released at so you know what that final product's going to be. But we also like to dilute to 50 proof. And although I don't recommend that for sipping enjoyment, when we dilute it to 50 proof, we can pick up other flavors that are otherwise hidden, and masked, and it tells us more about the bourbon. So from a sensory perspective, that's an important part of our evaluation.
1: Yeah, I've heard that. That's what a lot of tasting panels do. They'll, They'll proof it down a lot, and that's how you can find a lot of the, whether you find some bad notes or inconsistencies or something like that. But, you know, there's another question I want to ask, you know, now that you're coming off of, uh, well, you'll be running full production soon. But, you know, as you as you come off of a shutdown and everything kind of goes through a deep clean, you said earlier that you want to have some of that bacteria that lives in there. However, you kind of have to start over from scratch. So when you get this first run of barrels that come off of a clean distillation. Do you look at these and like, are they going to have a, a lot different characteristics than anything else? Or do you think like, oh, okay, well, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll kind of see what these turn out to be versus something that, you know, is going to have part of that, you know, either back set or part of, you know, yeah. other bacteria.
0: We, we got a pretty good handle on that. Now, the bacteria, you know, they're there, they're, they're present. Um, they're going to persist. Um, but when we are down, whenever we start up, because we do make a sour mash bourbon and we're, we want to go into our sour mash bourbon pretty quickly. I will start up on corn whiskey.
1: Oh, Willie. Really? okay. Yeah,
0: so, so corn whiskey doesn't get sour mash. So I'm gonna make enough corn whiskey, and we typically only make corn whiskey twice a year, and that's coming out of summer shutdown and then coming out of a Christmas shutdown. So therefore, after my corn whiskey has fermented and distilled and I now have back set, then that works out timing-wise when I start making my sour mash bourbon, and I now have backset. So yes. So what happens is those first few fermenters of um, our sour mash whiskey will have a corn backset rather than a sour mash backset, right? And, and I'm curious though, what what's, uh, what
1: product are you all making that goes for the corn whiskey?
0: It's a, it goes into a variety of blends, non okay. bourbon, but it goes into some other blends that we do. I mean, I mean, pretty much, you know, we do a lot of stuff at Sazerac and the, the Barton Seventy Two Distillery. We we make a lot of stuff. What I make is bourbon, corn whiskey, and we um, and, and experiment a little bit too.
1: Okay, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna poke and prod you there, but at least there's uh, at least that leaves the window open for yeah. something later. Well, I, I would, I would just say keep your eyes open. Okay, <laughs> we'll make sure we know that. Yeah. yeah. So this one. Was this the big dog? Was this the 160 proof? This, bur-
0: uh, this is the third one. Uh huh.
1: Yeah. So wow. Well, you could. You could. I. I'll be honest wow. with you. There's a lot Danny, going on. This was. Um. This is the. I think the first 160 proof bourbon I've ever tasted, and I think that was the first 150 proof bourbon I've ever tasted as well.
0: I um. So so when I when these samples were put in the bottle, I opened them and did a proof check. So you know it's 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 going to be within a proof. It's it's pretty close. And I um, have rarely seen this, you know, this is the highest one I've seen and, and I- Is honestly, it really? Oh yeah. I feel like I'm very, well,
1: I think I'm like, this is special then, this is super it, special. It
0: really. No, I, I, I mean, it's, it's amongst the top five for sure. I've seen a couple in the 160s and, and I, I promise you, these were randomly picked and based on location and warehouse, so meaning elevation in the warehouse and which warehouses. So they, they're random. So I did not say, let's find the highest. I, I know this one's high because I've sampled it before.
1: Not true. I was about to say, well, color me impressed because I'm, wow. I'm going to savor the flavor here because, man, a lot of, I don't think there's very often that you're going to chance to try to, you know, do 160 proof bourbon. There's a lot going on in this bourbon. Oh, yes. Wow. And so when you, when you talk about, you know, something that's 160 proof, where's the location of, of this particular barrel? Like, where'd you pull this one out of? All right well let me let me look at it decipher that code for us real quick so it came from um,
0: interestingly came it came from a warehouse that's uh, kind of exposed so it's going to get a little more airflow and it um, it came from not the highest Rick you know highest is 22 you know we got a couple at the 22 level the, the highest majority mm-hmm. 21 this came at 17 so it's not even the highest yeah um, you just kind of poked around and just found
1: it Yeah. Talk about my lucky day then. Yeah. I mean, really it was random. I mean, like I said, that's got, that's got a whole lot of stuff going on.
0: There's so much going on with this. Mm -hmm. This is, this is, you know, I, I wish we would do a, uh, just a one-off. My marketing people and PR people are going to hate this, (laughs) but what, wouldn't it be great if we did 12 year
1: old single barrels? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And a barrel proof. You know, And I think, I think that's the one thing that, uh, you know, we always try to, you know, we try to debunk or try to do whatever, you know, we've talked about with Elijah Craig and like, why don't you do barrel proof? And they're like, oh, there are different proofs. And I think, you know, I think you all could do it too. It's just a, uh, you know, it's a supply chain issue. It's it's being able to make sure that you, have, I mean, somebody's got to write the proof on the label. I don't know who it's going to be, but somebody has to write it. Uh, so there's definitely a, a, a problem that it, it's not, sorry, it's not a problem, but there is definitely something that, is to be said about, you know, just the process in itself that it does introduce hurdles and roadblocks when you try to do that. So it's understandable that it's very, very hard. So that's why we have something that, you know, you create some more of a consistent offering and stuff like that. But yeah, something like this, you'd be like, Oh God. Yeah.
0: And you know, remember we, we, talked about earlier, um, we did not know enough eight years ago to make the right amount. So 12 years ago was even worse. So, you know, if we dilute it down to a more, um, approachable proof and then certainly we're gonna get more volume out of it. So more people get a chance to try it. Mm -hmm. So that's that's part of it. But you know, and this this to me honestly, um I enjoy trying a hundred and sixty one proof bourbon, but I will enjoy this more a little bit more diluted. You know it's 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 I think
1: I think what you get out of it it's the same way that I got of it when I tasted the the final reserve of buddies bourbon you know that 40 year old bourbon he did and it's it's like you get the experience of tasting what a 40 year old bourbon tastes like and now i get the experience of what a 161 proof bourbon tastes like so that is that is ultimately just the experience in itself is being able to just be able to take that away from it no
0: doubt about it and that's what's special so i'm putting i've just put in two capfuls and you know just doing the rough math here um, I probably brought it from 160 down to 135 and maybe a little higher.
1: Well, you keep doing that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna <laughs> to keep taking my 160 over here because who knows when I'll get a chance to do that again. That's a, like I said, very, very awesome opportunity. And, you know, the other thing, uh, you know, talking about when you're looking at the future, you know, you talk about eight years, about 12 years ago. Let's talk about the current day, you know, when, uh, when Mark Brown comes to you and he was like, Danny. What's our, what's our forecast looking like for, for 2021? And are you basically going full steam ahead? Like we're not stopping. Like we've got to pump out so much more and more and more bourbon because we know we get the press releases. Like we know that Buffalo Trace is putting out or they're, they're, you know, they're building a rick house or one of those massive warehouses, like, you know, once every two to three months. So what's on your end of the plate over here is it is it kind of full steam ahead as well
0: oh no doubt about it now so i don't do forecasts i'm very fortunate you know we, we've got a model that actually looks out like 30 and 40 years which i have no idea how we predict what's going to happen 30
1: or 40 years yeah,
0: it's 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 crazy so i'm a part of that mostly from a production standpoint what am i capable of
1: producing they're like they're like this is what we need what can you do
0: That's right. So, and and we've done a lot in the last year. We've increased, without adding equipment, we've increased our ability to produce. And and what's really important about that is we have not changed what I will call the flavor creating step. So, for example, in the mash cooker, you need a certain amount of time at a certain temperature to convert starch into sugar. We've not messed with that because that also, to me, is flavor active. I mean, uh, do we eat oatmeal? Sometimes. Okay. So, I eat oatmeal. And I know that if I burn it, just a little bit, you can smell it, I go, damn it, you know, I can- What do you, what do you cook it in? You, I just put some water with that in a microwave. What, what do you, how do you cook oh, no, no. it? How do you burn I, your oatmeal? I do those stone ground oats that take about 20 minutes to cook.
1: Oh, look at you. Yeah, you're, in, you're not messing around with Yeah, that, so. this is
0: serious stuff. <laughs> so, so if you have a temperature a little too high, you can smell it from the opposite end of the house. And you can say, damn it, I just burned my oatmeal. So if we don't cook properly, you create flavors. And, and we don't talk about that, but if I do not cook properly, I can create some negative flavors. So, so, I don't fool with those steps, but what I can do is the amount of time it takes to get up to temperature or how fast I pump it from one vessel to another. So, if I trim time where it does not impact quality, I can get more capacity. And, and that's sort of been our focus is how do we get more without changing anything we do? you know i am um, you know you've been to the distillery i i love it i think it's gritty it's original it's genuine I, I like the gritty is the best term it's it's not a really showy place we don't have people polishing the copper every day and you know we don't have new tile floors but it's a genuine work environment and and that's how that's how it is, and it's gritty. And I, again, I, I just like that word. I that's how I describe our distillery.
1: It tells a story. It really. I, mean, does. I, I know being there with Josh multiple times and looking at the different bricks and how they were all interwoven and yes. how the distillery, you know, how it changed names and all this other kind of stuff. Like, I mean, it's it has a story to it, right? Yeah. And it has it has a lot of authenticity.
0: There, there's that one wall in front of our uh, boiler operation that's been there. I believe that wall. Give or take, I think that's 1897. I think that's original. And then the portion above it is, I believe, the nineteen twenties and the vast majority is nineteen forties. You know, so it's it's just a cool place to make bourbon. There's a lot of history there.
1: Yeah. I mean, you're totally right. And so as we kind of like round this off, we're we're going with the darkest bourbon that I have probably ever, besides that that final reserve I had with Buddy. This is easily the second darkest bourbon, maybe even the darker than that one that I've ever had because this is coming straight out of the barrel. And I mean, this is thing, I mean, it looks like, it looks like an Armagnac. It looks like like a 40 year old Armagnac is what it looks like.
0: It's really interesting. I mean, and and the hue, it's also, you know, possibly a little redder. It's less amber, but it's a little redder. And, And that's, this is really, this is a treat. This is unusual. And like I said,
1: this is random. Well, you, you definitely brought out the goods for me today. I can't say thank you enough because, like I said, there's, uh, there's definitely some things I've never experienced here. It's very different. So, the one we tasted prior. Yeah, the one we tasted prior, I mean, it, it had a lot of more alcohol explosion in your mouth and stuff like this. A lot more complexity, a lot more fruit. But then again, we're also taking a little bit of dip in the alcohol too, right? Yeah, well, let's see. We got one from 160 to 142. Still, 142, is uh, that's, that's nothing to uh, shy away from. Yeah, but, but I mean this thing is all of these have been fantastic. They've been phenomenal. And I, honestly, this is I think this is probably the most jealousy part of the job that anybody would be able to say is like, yeah, you just go into warehouse and try all these random uh, barrels and like I said, it might be random, but damn it's a good random. Yeah, and you know, unfortunately I don't do this all
0: day because I do have a distillery. <laughs> <laughs> you
1: do have a distillery run.
0: <laughs> yeah. But, you know, to me this one, um, this last one I get more oak. I get a little bit of
1: smoky oak for sure. I mean, if anybody could see the color on this, I mean, it's. uh, I've never been one to be able to describe colors because people are like, "Oh, it's like grassy. It's like, hey, it's like you know, it's. uh, This is. It's like it's like the outside of a plum is what it is. It's super unique.
0: Yeah, you know, and and you know, you cannot one cannot separate color from flavor because the same reactions that create color also produce flavor. So it's really hard to have differences in color and not have some differences in flavor mm-hmm. that's that's a you know that's a big deal and that's why when I look at these I evaluate color normally you know we tasted these they were not blind we knew what was what but normally um, when I do single barrel selections with with groups if I am generous or if I'm
1: um, happen to be there at the moment yeah. if
0: I'm if I'm lucky enough is what I meant to be there um, I always encourage we taste blind because a lot of people want to know well where was this barrel how old is it we'll get to that Let's taste them first because there's a bias. So if I know that one barrel came from the top of the rickhouse and one barrel came from the bottom and I'm gonna have a bias in my head and I'm gonna not be able to isolate that from my ability to taste. So you always taste blind first and then you reveal. And then you go back and say, aha, I got what I expected or wow, this is different. I didn't expect that. And here, this would be unexpected.
1: Yes. You know, I would say this is very unexpected. Like I said, when you came over today, you said you had a few samples. I was like, "Oh, okay, cool, have fun." And then you pulled these out. I'm like, "Okay, it, it got real. It got real, real fast." Well, well,
0: th- th- <laughs> well this is unique. Again, we're doing a 12 year soon, so I thought, you know what, I might as well get a jump on it before we before we start blending our 12 year olds. Let me let me see what I got.
1: Oh, you should you should. I think you should find one of these in ear market for yourself and put that in the lost barrel category. Well, sh- I don't know how many listeners you have, but may-
0: <laughs> maybe that will happen, but don't say anything.
1: Don't tell anybody. <laughs> yeah, I think they'll, they'll keep quiet as long as you promise that you'll, you'll give me half the barrel. Yeah, put it right, right. <laughs>
0: but, but half the barrel, the empty half or the, Oh, <laughs> there
1: we go. Smart move right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But Danny, I want to say thank you again for coming on the show today. I mean, it was fantastic not only learn about you your history your past you know starting from sneaking your mom's beer and understanding that like this was this was the path that you were really like born to you know find and, and really carve for yourself and to the point that you know you brought a lot of great samples here for us today to be able to just try i mean like i said this is this has been a serious treat for me it's the first time in my life that i've tried Proofs this high uh, with inside of a you know the bourbon category, so this is uh, this is definitely a special treat for me. So thank you so much for for being here today. Thank you for having me. I did, this was fun. I I
0: really appreciate talking to people who appreciate bourbon, and um, I know you do, and I know your fans do, and this was good for me too. This was fun for me too. So I enjoyed it.
1: So for those people that do appreciate bourbon, if there's a place they can learn about more about you or they could catch you uh, at a glimpse on a tour how do they find out more about you and about more about Barton? Oh boy. So, um, you
0: know, social media is not my focus in life. Um, and you know, although my children are trying to get me there, um, certainly we have a Barton D website. I, um, I do have an Instagram. It's sad as it is. It's Danny con bourbon. And, uh, maybe if I got more followers, I'd put more effort into it. How's that?
1: There we go. <laughs> so make sure you follow Danny con bourbon on Instagram and then yeah. Then he's, he's going to be all, and then he'll, and then, you know, he'll, uh, he'll do giveaways and say like first person to comment gets 160 proof bourbon sample sent to him. Just kidding on that one. Right yeah, <laughs> I'm just kidding on that one. But make sure you follow Danny and make sure you check out all the great products that are coming from Barton 1792. I mean, this is something that, you know, like I said, seriously blessed today of what we were able to try today of the 1792 12 year uh, from the 97 proof expression all the way to these barrel samples that uh, unfortunately you probably all won't get a chance, but you know, you get to hear it through the podcast and that's what matters.
0: They'll get a chance to try this as a blend in our next age 12 year release.
1: There you go. So uh, again, Danny, thank you so much for coming on the show today and make sure you can follow Danny on Instagram. You can also follow us on Instagram as well as Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, everywhere else, bourbon pursuit. And if you like the show, want to hear more, make sure you leave a comment. We love good reviews, bad reviews, everything that makes us uh, better. Just please go ahead and do that. And if you like the show, please support us, patreon.com slash bourbonpursuit. With that, this is Kenny signing off, and we'll see you all next week.